Welcome to Coffee with the College, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Healthcare Executives, Wisconsin chapter. Our goal is for listeners to find this podcast as relaxing as coffee with friends and just as comfortable as our guests and observers banter about questions that are on all of our minds. I'm your host, Janet Schultz. I'm Chief Information Officer at a human services company called MyPath. Our observers today are Brian Mahalski, EHR Deployment Lead at the Zablocki VA Medical Center in Milwaukee, and Madeline Hansen, Operations Manager in the Mayo Clinic Health System, Department of Family Medicine. Today, we're departing from our usual discussions of healthcare leadership or industry issues to talk about a topic that impacts healthcare personnel. The topic, the experience of being a working parent. This topic matters to healthcare because workforce availability, employee focus, and staff well-being are all impacted by whether we feel our children are cared for and safe, and by how working parents are supported as they re-engage in their work following the birth or adoption of a child. To help us explore this topic, our guest today is Michelle Yu. Michelle is the CEO and co-founder of Josie, a company dedicated to transforming the working parent experience. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you for having me, Janet. So to get us started, Michelle, can you tell us a bit about your career story up to 2018? And that 2018 is a milestone mark that we'll talk more about in a little bit. Sure. Happy to, Janet. So I've had a long career in healthcare. I started my career at Johnson & Johnson right out of undergrad. I participated in a leadership development program at J&J, and that was really my first exposure to the healthcare industry. The challenges, the unique complexities of the industry were so interesting to me, and I was hooked um, from, then, from that point forward. And so I decided to go ahead and go back to school, and I got my Master's of Public Health at the Health Management and Policy Program at the University of Michigan. And upon completion of that program, kicked off a nearly 13-year career in healthcare strategy consulting. So for most of my career, I have worked with hospitals and health systems on strategic engagements, anything from growth strategy to ambulatory strategy um, to consumer strategy um, was my focus for a very long time. And I think it's worth noting here that I really loved my career. I loved working with providers. I loved the client relationship development, the travel to different parts of the country and seeing community hospitals, the team-based work, the late night PowerPoint making and data and analysis. I really enjoyed it all. And it was a big part of who I was and my identity. So Michelle, you just shared the start of your career story. And I specifically asked you to tell your story up to 2018 because that's the year you became a working parent. So please share what you discovered. Yeah, great question. I would say there were two things I discovered when that big change in my life happened in 2018. The first one was that I was woefully underprepared for the big identity shifts that occurred when I became a parent. I would say in many ways, the becoming a mother part was almost the quote unquote easier part of that shift. I was one of those people that read all the parenting books before my baby came. And 
there are endless resources out there on how to parent and how to care for baby. I, of course, had my fair share of challenges. I don't think I got my son to sleep through the night until he was six months old. Um, so that certainly was the case. However, I do think that when I actually returned to work and became no longer just a professional, but a professional and a parent, that was a really big identity shift that was challenging to navigate. And I never quite found myself back in the same place that I was before having baby. And I really wanted to get there. I wanted to have that same degree of motivation and re-engagement that I had prior to um, having children. And that kind of continued on through the toddler years and then after having my second, my daughter in 2020 as well. The second thing I discovered was that there were actually a dearth of supports for this specific phase of my life and this transition period of my life. And I think that my employer really had great intentions and wanted me to thrive again in the same way I did before. But for whatever reason, I never quite was able to find my footing again in the same way I had prior um, to 2018. Those discoveries led to the creation of your company. Um, what was the tipping point that made you feel, I have to do this? Thanks for that question, Madeline. It's a great one. I would say there was probably a pre-tipping tipping point, if you will, and then there was the actual tipping point. So the pre-tipping point happened actually when I was on leave with my daughter. And that was um, in 2020, and I was approaching my return to work and found myself spinning and getting very anxious for that change. I have a partner who also works, and he does not have remote options. He has to be in the office five days a week. And we were now parents of two. And so I was starting to get really anxious and about navigating that entire transition. And I called my OBGYN and I thought to myself, she must have you know, a great set of resources for someone like myself to be able to help someone like myself going through this. And I'm just curious what she knows about. And when I called her, the answer was, oh, I'm not sure. You can go online and check out psychologytoday.com and see what you find. Um, and at that point, I thought, well, that's that's great. And it's great to have that resource, but I think we can do better. Then I would say the actual tipping point happened over the years after I had made that return. And I started to do more research to see if I was the only one experiencing this. I had anecdotally understood that I was not. Many of my friends, other working parents also went through many challenges. But I wanted to just see if there had been any research on this particular topic. And there is a lot of research on this topic, it turns out. I could share data and statistics with you all, all day long. But there are three in particular that I like to point out. And I call it my own personal rule of 40 um, because they're all 40% figures. And the first one is 40% of all new moms leave the workforce within one year following parental leave. The second comes from Clio, and it is that 40% of all working parents, birthing and non-birthing, 
have considered leaving their jobs in the past year. And then the third one, which I think is particularly relevant for this audience, is that 40% of female physicians either scale back or leave their careers entirely within six years of residency. So when I started seeing those kinds of data points, I started to realize that this was so much more than just about my own personal re-engagement at work. And this was a macro level issue that has tremendous implications for diversity of leadership pipelines, for organizational performance, for culture, and so many other things. Wow, 40% is such a staggering statistic to hear. Um, you know, and thank you for providing all of that uh, information. You've really built us up to want to dive in a little bit further into, into you know, the company that you've started. Michelle, could you, can we pivot a little bit and could you describe um, the core elements of your services with Josie? For sure. So our mission at Josie is to transform the working parent experience. And having spoken to dozens and dozens of both new working parents as well as organizations, we have found that in order to holistically tackle the issues, you have to work at both the organizational and the individual levels to drive engagement, retention, loyalty among this particular population. So I'll start with the organizational level and how we work with organizations to drive that. We do a couple of different things. Um, I would say one of the very first things we do with organizations is we do a culture assessment. So we essentially are asking, do you have a workplace that is supportive of working parents? And where are your gaps? Where are your blind spots? How does that stack up against both your own stated values as an organization and our own inventory of best practices? So when we do this assessment, it's typically not as much about what programs and policies do you have in place, although that's really important in its own right, but it's often about the communication application of those policies that we really look at. So I'll give you an example. I was speaking to um, someone, a healthcare professional, who, when they were returning to work, had to pump. They were a breastfeeding individual. And when they returned, she was handed a pumping schedule. These are the times that you will pump at work. So the organization allowed for it, which is great. The policy was in place. However, for anyone who has had to breastfeed before or knows someone who has had to do that, you understand that our bodies don't necessarily pump at specific exact times. Um, and I think that was a missed opportunity for that individual and that person's manager or whomever was determining that schedule to just sit down and have a conversation about, okay, what time do you start pumping during the day? And let's work out a way to give you what you need and also set some times that works for both of us. And that's a win-win discussion. Oftentimes we find that's not happening. So that's a really important component of our work. On the organizational level as well, we do manager trainings. Oftentimes, people leaders are not equipped with the skills, the tools, the communication that they need to effectively support their working parent employees. And again, it's not because they don't want to, but oftentimes maybe if they haven't experienced it themselves or haven't managed many people who have become working parents, they just don't have that experience. And there are missed opportunities to train these individuals and help give them the tools to effectively do that. And the third piece is community building. 
So we support with things like working parent employee resource groups, standing them up, launching them, facilitating them. This is starting to become trendy outside of healthcare. We are seeing more and more organizations launch working parent ERGs. And I do know in healthcare as well, ERGs are starting to become popular. We haven't seen as many um, ERGs in the healthcare space for working parents specifically, but I think I see a lot of positive momentum in that regard. On the individual level, we've developed a powerful coaching program. And because Josie is comprised of many former healthcare leaders, I am excited to say that we've taken a page out of the healthcare playbook and we take a team-based approach supporting individuals. So our program is a defined period of time. It's proactive and the curriculum is handpicked topics that are common for working parents. And during the program, you meet with an executive coach, a mental health coach, and a transition coach that work together as a team to support you as an individual as you transition into your working parent identity. Michelle, I have a follow-up question. Um, in, you had said that your curriculum is for a specific time frame. How does Josie ensure that the parent and um, employer is successful outside of that time frame? As the um, you know, we babies grow, the you know the needs of that working parent evolve over time. Um, like you gave the example of of the breastfeeding schedule and how even that alone can fluctuate um, with with the timing of when you might need to pump and how frequently you need to pump. So how does um, how does the coaching process help set up the parents and the manager for success beyond that initial coaching period? Great question. I would say there are three um, ways that we do that. So the first one is uh, that I didn't mention earlier. We also engage with people before they go out on leave. So this starts pre-leave and making sure that you're set up for success when you actually make that transition. And that's a really important part of that entire journey, if you will. The second piece that I would say is individuals have continued access to their coaches. And so we absolutely offer um, the ability to communicate with your coaches and have additional sessions should you need it. Um, and that helps to give that ongoing support for that individual. But perhaps third and most importantly, in order to actually have a sustainable environment where someone can thrive even beyond those big life transition stages of their life is again, you have to have the culture in your company be one that is supportive of that individual. Somebody could be coached all they want and have a great experience, but if they're going back to a manager who is not going to be supportive of them in adjusting and making that transition back to work, then it sort of falls apart. And so that's why we have to work with organizations as well for this to be a sustainable program and for us to meet our mission. So Michelle, you kind of led right into the next thing I was wondering about. You've alluded to it a few times, but I'm curious very directly if you've worked at all with healthcare organizations, since that's our primary audience here on Coffee with the College, and whether you see similar challenges in this space. Absolutely, we do. In fact, we see tremendous opportunity in healthcare. So I think it's worth noting here that the challenges of retention among the workforce that is in expanding their family stages of life preceded the pandemic. But I will say the pandemic shone a light on this issue. 
In 2021, the Journal of the American Medical Association published a study looking at turnover rates among all healthcare professions. And they found that the cohort with the highest turnover were women with children under five. And scarier still is the recovery for that cohort is slower than others. So that's sort of at the high level, what we're seeing. Then when you look at specific segments of the healthcare workforce, you see some interesting things as well. I had mentioned earlier the 40% figure for female physicians. That study actually was done in 2019. That was before the pandemic. And when you look at that population and try to understand why they're leaving, nearly 80% of those physicians say that family was the primary driver for why they decided to scale back or leave the workforce. In 2022, JAMA did another study looking at this particular trend, and they found that female physicians were much more likely than their male counterparts to be responsible for childcare, schooling, and household tasks. So I think these are some really important things to look at, especially as medical schools are increasingly majority female. A third of our physician workforce are female, and again, has implication for diversity of our pipeline of leadership. Then you look at nurses, which is another really important cohort, I think, to think about. Many are female of childbearing age, and we are seeing tremendous turnover among this population. That's something I think this audience probably knows very well. And contract labor is expensive. Turnover costs are expensive. And so I think it is absolutely something that healthcare leaders need to pay attention to. I was listening to some research coming out of the advisory board company, which is also my former employer. And they were talking about nursing labor overall, and they found some interesting things. They found that there is a big population of baby boomer nurses that are starting to age out of the workforce. On the other end, they're seeing a population of influx of nurses that are newly trained, but then they see a dip in the middle. So I was listening to actually, Janet, your last podcast, and I believe you use the term mid-careerists. So these are the nurses that have five to seven years of experience. They are highly trained. They are highly competent. But for whatever reason, they are difficult to retain. Lo and behold, that also happens to align with the family expansion stages of life. And there is a lot of evidence that that is also a driver of nurses choosing to leave their professions. So really important to pay attention to this particular cohort, not only from a culture perspective, but there are likely quality and safety impacts as well. Michelle, thanks for thanks for being here. Um, uh, you have no idea. Well, you do have some idea because <laughs> of our prep call how uh, how this hits home for me, and and maybe at, uh, in a future question or at the end we'll get to that, but. Um, for now, what do you feel are Josie's greatest successes so far? Yeah, Brian, thank you for that question. I would say aligned to what I said earlier about what we do, organizational support and individual support. The successes are aligned to those, and I'd like to talk about them that way. So at the organizational level, I think one of the best successes we've had is finding the low-hanging fruit the low-cost, low-drama, inexpensive ways to advance your culture that people just aren't aware of because they have the blind spots and helping them discover those. 
So that has been truly rewarding. Um, I was recently talking to a CRNA, for example, who um, is a recently new mom and she has to pump. Now her organization allows her to pump when she needs to, which is great. But on her particular floor, they had turned basically a closet into a pumping room. And so they added a fridge and a lock and she can pump in there. And that is great that she has that. Certainly isn't the most comfortable location, um, but it works. But she was telling me that on the sixth floor of the hospital that she works at, there is a wonderful lactation room. But in order to get there, it would take her entire break to actually walk over to that room and then pump and then come back. She wouldn't have enough time to do it. So what could you do to maybe outfit that just a little bit better to make it a little bit more comfortable for that individual? You know, outside of healthcare, we see a lot of companies stocking these rooms with extra supplies, for example, putting in a comfortable chair, making sure there's an outlet so that people can actually plug in and document or work during that pumping time, having a standing table that they put over the chair so you could set your laptop down. These are not hugely expensive things that you can do that really make a big difference for an individual. So I would encourage, you know, healthcare leaders, if you haven't checked out, you know, your pumping rooms, take a walk down and take a look. It can really help develop that empathy um, and be able to see what you can potentially do about it. On the individual side, I am proud to say we have a 100 net promoter score, which means that every single one of the individuals that have gone through our program would highly recommend our program to a friend or colleague. We recently received a testimonial from a new mom who said that after her first child, she was barely surviving and winging it. And she actually at one point packed up her desk ready to leave her company. With her second child, she got smarter and she proactively reached out to us for support. And now she says that having gone through our program, she is not only surviving, but she feels like she is thriving both at work and at home. That's awesome. We, um, it's great to hear some organizations are going further than just basically checking a box of saying there's a room over here for you uh, somewhere in the building. Some of these healthcare organizations have towers that are, like you said, huge and um, making yeah. them feel a little bit more at home is, is crucial. Yeah, you hit on an important point, Brian, and, and that is alluding to what I said earlier, which is Sometimes it's not so much about what programs and policies you have in place and whether you've checked a long list of things, but it's more so the application and demonstration of them that really matter. On behalf of Coffee with the College, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Thanks to our premier sponsors, Epstein UN Architects, HGA, Hush Blackwell, and thank you as well to our preferred sponsors, C.G. Schmidt, Findorf, Paul Render, Nutanix, Plunkett Research Architects, and Quarles and Brady. So, Michelle, you gave a couple of starter examples of successes, right? As your company is is gaining its roots and and um, helping not only your company but those you serve move forward. Um, you're still in those early stages, I think, so you may still be seeing some deficits in your work. Uh, that employers need to think about. Can you tell us what you're seeing on the 
on the deficit side that might make all of us tune in a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. There are a few categories that I like to think about this in. And the three in particular that I wanted to highlight here are flexibility, culture, and individual well-being. And so, and I could talk about these both in the context of healthcare and outside, um, because I think that there are a lot of great examples of things being done and not being done, um, both inside and outside of healthcare. So I'll start with flexibility. Um, you know, right now, there is a lot of discussion about how companies are rolling back pandemic era supports. On the non-healthcare side, it's the call back to the office, you know, is the hot topic right now. Um, rolling back virtual and remote work programs. Although on the healthcare side, we know that it's a very unique animal. You have to, at some point, go in and physically see a patient. And so it's just different. Um, but flexibility is a important topic, both inside and outside of healthcare. So when we think about flexibility in a healthcare context, we often think about scheduling and what can we do from a scheduling perspective to support individuals who may need something different than the traditional shift work, set templates type of schedules. And I think there's a lot of things that we can do there, but we're still in the very early stages from what I can tell and speaking with healthcare organizations on thinking more creatively about that. So, and it doesn't have to always be about, you know, changing your schedules, although there's a lot of options there from whether you change shift times, start times, end times, part-time work, et cetera, but also thinking about things like physical flexibility. So are there potentially options for someone to work in a different location or remotely for some time if that's something that they need? Um, you know, I was talking to a, a nurse friend who was pregnant and her work involves lifting very heavy patients. And when she was pregnant, she asked if there was potential to maybe do something different because her body just couldn't handle that anymore. And her employer had a really hard time trying to figure that out and was unable to help her. And so she eventually, this particular individual decided to leave um, her profession altogether. So I think flexibility is a huge piece um, to be thinking about. Um, the one thing I see outside of healthcare that I haven't seen as much in healthcare, although I'm sure it's happening, is things like on-ramp programs. So changes in schedule don't have to be forever. In non-healthcare companies, I've seen a lot of examples where someone can say, come back over a period of six weeks. So you start with two days a week, slowly ramp up to three, then four, and then eventually you get back up to full time. And what that does is that helps that individual ease that transition, help to adjust their schedules in what they're doing, and is really popular um, among those who take it. Um, the second example is culture. And I know we've hit about on this a lot, but I can't emphasize it enough. I'd like to start this one with two examples. So the first one is I was speaking to a female primary care physician and she was able to work out a part-time schedule with her employer. It was the first time that this particular health system was able to work something like this out for one of their PCPs. And that's great. She was ecstatic. But when she actually went to take the part-time option, it still felt like the demands on her and expectations of her were such that were mirrored off a full-time employee. So again, the application of that was not what she had hoped for. And so she ended up 
actually leaving her profession as well. The other one is parental leave. Um, this is something that I think culturally in medicine is often difficult to discuss and there's a stigma surrounding it. I want to point to your audience to an article by Dr. Charles Fang. He's an allergist immunologist. He wrote something in STAT recently and the title was Why Physicians Need to and Should Take Paternity Leave. So he was specifically speaking to his male counterparts. And essentially what he says in the article is that being able to take yet that paternity leave has tremendous implications on his own mental well-being, his child's well-being, the ability to bond with his baby, and perhaps most importantly for his partner, who is a full-time working mother, for her own professional advancement and mental well-being, and also reductions in postpartum complications. He took first, for his first child, I believe he took maybe three weeks. And then with his second, he was able to arrange for, I believe, 10. And he took it and then had written that article about his experience. The third component is individual well-being. So 66% of all working parents are experiencing burnout. And when I talk to healthcare professionals, they suspect it's higher among their cohort. Um, and I believe them. And so being able to offer proactive supports in well-being and making sure you understand what the needs are of those populations is really important. And then removing the stigma around actually engaging in those supports is just as important. Thank you so much for that, Michelle. And you know, I'm I'm really glad that you brought up that example with the physician and the paternity leave and him taking, you know, the three to six weeks. It's it's bringing us right into this next question that I have for you, um, because you you know you pointed out that culture has a significant impact on the success of employees' um, transition as a working parent, and. You know, it is sad to say, Michelle, but it seems like there can be a stigma around taking more than six weeks of parental leave. Um, you know, your example was with with the father, um, mm-hmm. but even with with mothers who ha- who tend to take on more of that that burden of um, the initial child rearing. So, what do you think can or should be done to change that? I love that you brought up that question, Madeline. And I think the answer is it has to start at the top down. Leadership needs to take leave if that is something available to them and that is part of their particular phase of life. They need to encourage it. They need to vocally support it. And other people will see that. Until that happens, I think the stigma is going to remain. We really set the tone as leaders of our organizations in what is okay to do and what's not okay to do. And so I would say that it has to start there. A second component to that is also making sure that your employees have bias training in understanding why parental leave is necessary, oftentimes required by law to offer to employees the physical, mental, emotional impacts to health that it has on individuals. I think sometimes, again, it's not that individuals are not well-intentioned or don't want to understand, but if they haven't gone through that experience themselves, they may may not know. And so education is a big part of this. Michelle, I, um, as you know, I have a three month old and my wife just went back to work last week and I, I've been able to experience paternity leave and I'm a pretty traditional person in healthcare and, and was kind of 
iffy about when I was offered that, how much do I take? Is there a stigma of, yeah, it's available, but I'll be one of the first, um, I would say, generations to use it or something like that. Uh, um, and so I, I took a month and then now I'm taking staggered amounts. And I will tell you to our listeners that that is the glory, most glorious three days I've had. And I, I have another 20 to go or something like that. And, and I, um, if anything, I proved to my wife that, that I, I can handle it, I think, uh, so that if there's anything to take away from that, but, um, in general, this is my first, so, uh, I, I, I need some advice. Um, so my wife and I are both full-time, uh, we do both have jobs where we need to be in the office. She's an RN. So that hits on that other, um, aspect you mentioned mm-hmm. her employer is very um c- they're conforming to her pumping schedule so that's good but literally as of this weekend we are officially moving from the east side of milwaukee now to a western suburb so mm-hmm. with all of those things going on <laughs> uh in general not necessarily just to brian advice but in general <laughs> what would you give somebody in my position advice I, you've given a lot of a lot of advice today but is there anything else of course and you are not alone brian you know your story happens with many um individuals that we speak to and work with so i would say the one thing I would suggest you do, and really any other individual who might be a new working parent or going through that transition, um, to just take a pause, maybe in the next week or so, take five minutes and make an inventory of what your values and priorities now in the context of you being a working parent. Write those down. Do it with your wife. We often don't pause and do that, recognizing that we've just gone through an incredible shift in our identities. And then use that inventory to guide your decision-making and show yourself some compassion because your to-do list will never end. It won't. But what you can do is empower yourself to know what matters most to you and your wife and use that to guide you and know that you are doing the best you can with what you have. And that is more than enough. Thanks. That's actually incredibly timely again for that because we decided that family and continuing to work and be professionals uh was important to us and actually we're moving because the of the uh, in a unavailability of daycare where we currently live so mm-hmm. we're moving because of daycare and that's oh, another yeah. like, another thing that we have to figure out and so um yeah, we didn't want to drive to a western suburb just to drive home. Yeah, based on travel and everything like that. So that was a value of spending time in a car was not a value we we wanted. So uh yeah, it's it it's important and and I think we need to um specifically sit down and make sure those are those are well known to each other. Thanks. Brian And I um, wanted to just throw in one last comment. You brought up a really good point that I failed to mention earlier, but childcare is extremely important part of all of this. And I think there was a piece in Kaiser Family Foundation recently about how more and more hospitals are opening daycare centers 
or finding unique ways to support their workforce in backup childcare. I recognize that that might be an expense that is not available to many providers and health systems, and that's okay. But there are creative ways to think about how you can support individuals with that. Um, a lot of it's happening outside of healthcare as well. And so I think it's important to take that into consideration as you think about how you can better support working parents. So that brings me to another angle. Um, it, it dovetails a little bit with the question Madeline asked earlier about sustaining, right? Because when you have a child, one of the most dreaded phone calls you get once they're <laughs> school age is the health room at school calling and saying, come and pick Jimmy up. Um, <laughs> and you're right in the middle of your work day. So it's a thing. And, and what yep. do you what Josie advise parents to do to navigate that and avoid the panic attack when that phone call comes? Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, emotional regulation. <laughs> so part of it is also just, you know, being able to calm yourself and say, this is happens to everyone. I can get through this. We are going to figure this out. Sometimes when that phone call comes, it's just a dreaded thing and it can impact your entire day. Um, just getting that phone call. I know this all too well. My daughter was born in 2020. <laughs> so um, it's a great question, Janet. Um, the other piece that we advise a lot of our clients to do is proactively think about what you will do in those scenarios. I think oftentimes we plan for the main primary child care that we're going to have. We do all the research on the nanny or the daycare or the family member that's going to care for our child. But when something happens, we don't talk as much about, okay, let's work out with my partner. Who's going to be responsible for picking up if this happens on these days? You know, um, do we have backup options lined up? You know, do we have a neighbor or a babysitter that can come in when, you know, the daycare closes down? Um, so there is some proactive planning you can do to make sure that when those do happen, you at least have a plan in place um, so that you can work that out with your family, with your partner, et cetera, and help to make um, that whole scenario less stressful. And then I had another question I noted as you were, as I was listening to you, Michelle, and I'm, this has been such a wonderful and positive podcast that I, I hate to be a little bit of a Debbie Downer here, but the, the one thing that kept running through my mind is you've talked so much about culture and how important it is to train managers. And I do know that another dynamic that can emerge is even though a policy might be upheld and flexibility might be granted, there can sometimes still be almost like a subtle guilt trip um, that can unfold. So what do you say to employers about avoiding, you know, there isn't an outright stigma, but there's a little bit of a guilt trip that can be laid out <laughs> with parents. Um, yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. You know, that is exactly why the manager training component of what we do is so important. And what you say, Janet, happens at many organizations. I've experienced it myself. Um, many parents that I've worked with experience it. And as I said earlier, I think oftentimes, you know, our rising stars, our people leaders um, are great individual contributors, but we don't necessarily invest in training them to be great people leaders. Um, it's a huge missed opportunity, and we often can't expect them to be if we aren't also investing in resources to help them 
become more effective as, as leaders. And so I would say the really critical component is to give them the tools necessary, train them in some of those common biases when you have a working parent employee. One that we hear often is oftentimes managers make assumptions that a working parent employee doesn't want that high profile engagement, doesn't want to travel again. And so they'll assign them, you know, the lower profile, quote unquote, more relaxing type project work. But I've spoken to many mothers and fathers who actually want to get back into the fold. They want to take on their former clients. They want to be on those high profile projects. And so I think it's about sitting down and having a conversation with that individual and talking about, again, what are your values? What do you need right now? And being very open-minded about that um, and intentional. Thanks for that, Michelle, because I wanted to bring it up specifically because when we talk about retention and resilience, right, the guilt trip can be in little itty bitty bits, but over time it gets old. (laughs) As leaders, we have to be sure that we're not slowly draining people's motivation to stay in a profession, which if we were just a bit more supportive, we could get them through the family expansion stage um, in a win-win way. So I think it's just important to call it out. Thank you for calling it out, Janet. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. Yep. Well, Michelle, on behalf of Brian and Madeline and our listeners, thank you so much for making time for us this morning. We really appreciate it. This discussion was just fascinating. And I think we'll be thought starting um, to a number of our listeners. So thank you so much. Um, Jotted down a few notes, uh, not to repeat some of the tips and tricks that Michelle shared, but one of the things I wrote down was literally, if we're going to have a workforce in the future, We need children to be born and nurtured. (laughs) And if we are going to uh, need children to be born and nurtured, we're going to need to become better in supporting working parents. And it's time for us to really be intentional about that. Um, And so as at a minimum, I think what we've heard today is that as organizations, we should be looking for, as Michelle said, low cost, low drama, ways to start to shift the culture and then use those low-cost, low-drama examples to do even more. Um, But it's a start. And so I hope um, some of the examples that Michelle shared today create those seeds of a start. And then the second note I made was um, one that we come to in so many podcasts, and that is that crucial conversations matter. And I think the point you just made, um, Michelle, about uh, one of the greatest disservices we can do to working parents is assume we know what they're thinking and that everyone's family situation and support structure is different and enables different decisions. And so this is a very one-to-one relationship building work um, that we're asking of our managers to have those crucial conversations uh, with their family age employees and see what they want and find the win-wins. That is so perfectly summarized, Janet. So as always, we thank you listeners for tuning into our podcast and we look forward to uh, being with you virtually next month. Take care. 
This podcast is copyrighted material of the American College of Healthcare Executives, Wisconsin Chapter 2023.